Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 136 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I catch up with my friend H. Joseph Ehrman, proprietor of the legendary San Francisco bar Elixir and one of the driving forces behind Fresh Victor, an awesome fresh juice-based cocktail mixer line that's been making waves in the beverage community. We dig into a whole bunch of awesome stuff during this episode, some of it ancient history and some of it completely groundbreaking. But before we get in too deep here, let's do the right thing and give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Pamplemousse au Poivre, the drink that H created to win the cocktail branch of the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. To make it, you'll need two ounces of good quality mezcal, one ounce Giffard Pamplemousse Rosé, which is a pink grapefruit liqueur, a half ounce of Marie Brizard Poivre de Sichuan, which is a Sichuan pepper liqueur. We talk about this at length in the episode, and H kind of shares his hacks on how he makes it. A half ounce of lemon juice and one dash of grapefruit bitters. If you don't have those, you can always substitute a dash or two of our embitterment orange bitters. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake until well chilled, strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, and garnish with a lemon zest cone filled with pink peppercorns. I love this drink because it's very balanced, using intense flavors like smoke from the mezcal, grapefruit, and peppercorns, and then integrating them into a classic sour cocktail. It showcases H's background, but it also advances the conversation about using fresh ingredients to jazz up tried and true drink formats. If you head on over to Elixir, H's bar in the Mission District of San Francisco, you can try this cocktail for yourself. So, now that you're well hydrated, let's set our sights on this excellent interview. Some of the topics H and I discuss include how he combined his culinary art, general contracting, business administration, and PR skills to resurrect one of San Francisco's oldest and most storied bars. Some reflections on his career so far, from winning cocktail competitions to becoming a certified cognac and rum educator to being featured on the cover of the New York Times. The difference between generalists and specialists in the spirits and cocktail space, and why the best generalists are very often secret specialists and insatiable learners. What it's like to launch a juice-based mixer company focusing on his latest project, Fresh Victor. Some thoughts on spirits judging, in particular what he and I are excited about at this year's ADI Annual Judging of Craft Spirits. The crazy reality of being able to trace a barrel shortage through the years simply by listening to your palate and much, much more. 
This is one of a few little impromptu interviews I managed to get during this year's American Distilling Institute judging event. Over the next few weeks, you'll get to hear little snippets and impressions from a bunch of different folks I had the opportunity to learn from and how they're all working to help build the spirits and cocktail industry of tomorrow. I'm super stoked to bring in these interviews, and I'm even more stoked that I just have the opportunity to sit in the room with these folks and soak up the knowledge and experience that they have to offer. So please sit back and enjoy this really, really fun conversation with my friend, H. Airman. H, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you introduce yourself just generally to our listeners and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you're coming from in this big, bold industry of ours? I have been in the business for a long time. I started uh, around 1986 as a line cook in uh, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore. My parents had bought a, a house at the beach on Long Beach Island, and I went to the restaurant on our street to get a job and was hired to be a a bar a uh, a bus boy but when i showed up the front of house manager wasn't there and the chef was who was a uh, a guy from new orleans named duke le cicero and he uh he said you you mike's not here you want to learn how to cook and i was like sure you know nice. it's like 16 and and uh he took me under his wing and I learned how to cook and cooked alongside him. He was, I mean, I was 16. He was probably 21 or something like that. He and Mike that he mentioned had just gotten out of CIA. And uh, prior to that, Duke had worked for Paul Prudhomme in New Orleans. And Duke went on to open his own restaurant in, in the French Quarter, which uh, I think he just shut last year, actually. And uh we connected many years later in 2007 i in uh tales of the cocktail i did a a um spirit of dinner with him at at his restaurant along with francesco lafranconi and um alan katz from new york and the three of us did this dinner and it was the first time i'd seen duke in 20 years and it was great and so anyway in between all that time i you know, I worked in bars and restaurants all through high school and college. And uh, after college, I, I mostly cooking positions. And then after college, I moved to Vail, Colorado. And I started working as a cook in a restaurant there and worked my way from the kitchen to the bar and started bartending. I was there for four seasons. And uh, then I went to get my MBA at Thunderbird in Arizona. And I bartended all through school at the pub on campus till I finished my MBA, got a job in Madrid, stayed in Spain for a couple of years. Oh, wow. And uh, working in, in PR, I was uh, working in a small PR firm. And then I came back to the States and got a job in technology during the dot-com boom on the East Coast in Washington, DC. A year later, I got recruited to Silicon Valley, moved out here, and that job lasted like nine months. And here I was with all this MBA debt and, uh, did not want to leave California. I'd been trying to get to California forever, so I wound up uh, doing a lot of things, one of which was bartending to make rent, and was the thing that was most consistent money. And after six months of bartending for someone else, I said, screw tech. I, <laughs> this is not the industry I really love. I'm loving being back in the bar business. This is the thing I know and love. Why not put my MBA 
to this industry. And so I quit everything I was doing at the time, which I had like four jobs. And I just wrote a business plan, raised capital, found a bar and bought it and opened Elixir in 2003, November 21st, 2003. And it was a, a rundown old bar that when I walked into it at first, I said, these people don't know what they're selling. This is a, this is a real deal old West saloon. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get the real estate as well. And so I shut it down for a couple months and stripped it down, fixed things. Uh, I'd like to say I restored it. I didn't renovate it. I brought it, brought it back to its Victorian kind of glory and made it a saloon where it had not been a saloon in, in theme for years and years. And over the years since then, 16 and a half years, I've had it now that I, I've done lots of research. So I know the whole story. It's, that could be an entire separate show. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because San Francisco, I would say right now, San Francisco is one of the, let's call it the big five cocktail cities in the U.S. You could you could argue about whittling that number down, I'm sure, but it's certainly one of the big five cocktail cities in the U.S. And um, I think it's, alongside New York, one of the two cocktail cities that has the richest, deepest history. All right, maybe with yeah. New Orleans. We'll put yeah. New Orleans in there as well. But San Francisco is so far away from New York and New Orleans. It's on a completely different coast. It's on a completely different, as far as like we're talking 19th century when the cocktail first comes of age, it's a completely different supply stream. There's different people, yeah. there's different ingredients. The Pisco Punch, yeah. right? It, it San Francisco is so unique in that respect. Um, and what? my bar goes back to that. Yeah. Know, to, so to, tell us a little bit about that. We don't need to make a full episode on it, but yeah. I feel like it would be a sin to pass that up completely. Yeah. The, the Elixir sits a block from the Mission Dolores Church, which is, was founded in 1776. And with all my research, I've dated it back to 1858. And that's documented existence of a saloon on that corner going back over 161 years. And the first saloon that was there burned down in 1906 along with the rest of the city. The, the saloon that was rebuilt is what I have now in 1907. And the guy that did that, Patrick J. McGinnis, he, he was the longest running proprietor from 1858 to 19, uh, 18, sorry, 1893 to 1933. He was 40 years. Wow. So 13 years in when it burned down and he's the one that had the new building built. And he contracted a, a, an architect who turned out to be one of the most famous architects in California history. His name was Brainerd Jones, who built Carnegie Libraries and the, the Petaluma or the uh, Sebastopol train station and mm -hmm. a lot of real big buildings and cool stuff. And so the history is it's, it's a cool building. The bar is beautiful where that neighborhood back in gold rush days you know, and if it was 1858, I can date it to, it's possible that it went longer, but no, no longer than 1848, because prior to the gold rush, there were only about 500 people in that area, maybe 5,000 people in the entire peninsula. And it went up to a hundred thousand within a year or two, like it went, and went crazy. And so it's, it's a very historic location and it's just cool to have a piece of that that history of something that, you know, you're standing in my bar and you're like, think about all of those years and all the people that have drank and, and that square footage and the things that have happened. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so right now, can you talk a little bit about what your concept is and maybe how that's 
similar and or different to what it might have looked like when it was a saloon? I tried to... I tried. I worked with everything that I had. I stripped it all down. I had a contracting background as well through my 20s when I was working in restaurants after college. I was also contracting. I built a lot of homes and a lot of renovations, a lot of finishes mostly. Um, and so I stripped all the wood down. I repaired the walls. I had. Uh, I, I repaired the floor, and you know the like the um, wainscoting around the walls were, was covered with about 11, 12 coats of paint. Ironically, the last coat of paint was a faux wood finish. And I looked at it and I said, I know there's good wood underneath that. And I stripped it down. And sure enough, there was beautiful old redwood. And no kidding. The bar and the back bar actually predate the building. There's a plaque on the bar that says San Francisco Store and Office Fixture Company, which was a, a company across the street and up the block at it, which was the address on the plaque is a pre-1906 address. So in other words, after they rebuilt the block in 1907, that, that address was different, the different buildings. From the earthquake. Yeah. And so, and, and when I looked in the business records, that company moved off 16th Street after 1907. So this bar came from, some, from that store, but before the earthquake in 06. So it's a, a late 19th century bar, solid mahogany, no burn marks on it. The bar matches the back bar. And so that's beautiful. And that's an amazing piece. And so I, I put in lighting that is period style that wasn't there. Um, but other than that, it, I really just kind of shined it up. You know, I cleaned it up and I, the decor that I put in there and the colors and, and the lighting and the things that I took, uh, I guess design touches that I put on were fashioned to be Victorian and old saloon. Whereas when I, the bar that I bought was a rundown shithole. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it had been many things over the years. It was a, a merchant Marine dive bar called Swedes from 1945 to no, 1965 to 1985. It was a, a, a gay Latino club from 85 to 89 called La Bandita. And then it was, bought in 89 out of court because the owner died of AIDS and it, and it was and his family had disowned him and so the um, Bill Carlson bought it out of court and Carlson owned a number of bars around the city and he called it Jack's Elixir Bar and turned it into a beer bar with 62 taps with, and in a bar that has a fire code of 49 people <laughs> so interesting <laughs> it was in the 90s beer wave and yeah very different so what are you primarily serving? Like if I were to walk off the street into Elixir today, what would I see? A lot of whiskey. We have uh, over 600 bottles of whiskey around over the years as I, as I continued to collect whiskey, I just kept building shelves. And so there's, there's shelves that, that surround it 360 up above on the back bar. Um, so lots of great spirits as well. The, you know, the other categories have nice little boutique collections, but it's predominantly whiskey. We have um, 16 taps, and so I keep a nice, every tap's a different style of beer, and I try to keep everything pretty local and, and uh, rotating when possible. And then, of course, you know, kind of made my name on the cocktails back when nobody was making good cocktails, and I started doing that around 2005 and six, and that's when it started to get noticed, and that kind of what put us on the map was, was my cocktails back then. So I was in San Francisco prior to this event that we're both judging at here in Tiburon, and um, I've been I've been through different parts of the San Francisco cocktail scene. 
throughout you know the past couple of years and and there's a very distinct tiki vibe in some places uh in other places i notice a more upscale almost what i would say is verging on fussy cocktails where where do the cocktails on your program right now kind of fit into that like what kind of drinks are you making, uh, do you have like any like examples of your favorite or your best-selling drinks on the menu right now? I, you know, when I basically by the time, by 2005, my bar was not doing great. It was doing okay. And I was a few years into it and I was like, I'm either going to make some dramatic changes and make this thing really make some money, or I'm going to get out and go do something else. I don't, you know, I don't want to just kick this around. So I, made some dramatic changes and I leaned on my culinary background. And so I started, uh, I bought a whole bunch of books and I started making classics and, and brought back some stuff that I believed in. Like I loved rye whiskey and nobody was working with rye whiskey. And I'd started doing a Sazerac before people knew what a Sazerac was. But I also started muddling all kinds of stuff and you put like pulling out a food processor and, and, and juicer and stuff and started making produce driven culinary style cocktails. And there were a few other people in town that were doing that, that, um, and, and back then we all, we sat at each other's bars and we talked about it. And I mean, there were probably 15 of us, you, you know, and I remember when I, when I joined the USBG, I was number 16. I was the member number 16 for the San Francisco chapter. And we had maybe three chapters in the whole country. I think it was us, LA and Vegas. Wow. And, uh, and I got very involved with that. And so I just kept making these kinds of drinks and I started getting press for it. And to this day, I would say our original list, which hovers around eight drinks regularly, are culinary, culinarily driven, fresh produce and, and seasonal. I, for a number of years, changed the menu six times a year. And it was, it was you know... It was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we don't do that uh, anymore. Uh, we do maybe two to three menus a year now. And um, right now, I guess uh, we're about to actually, we're going to be launching a new menu next week. Um, our, some of the drinks that'll carry over are my Pamplemousse au poivre, which that and the and the Murphy Sour are the two drinks that I won the San Francisco World Spirits competition cocktail competition the last two years in a row i won that and wow. it's, it's coming up again next month so hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll have a three pete thanks <laughs> <laughs> um the the pamplemousse is a uh i use del maguey vita with some uh giffard pamplemousse and i make a i make a, a pepper cordial i call it elixir de poivre which was kind of a funny story it was made it's it's based on a marie brizard essence de poivre that they they sent me a bottle of this this uh liqueur and said you know this letter we love your work we'd love to see what you can do with this please make a cocktail and send us the send us the recipe so the that year and i've, I've been a judge at san francisco competition for a long time now and they sent us this thing saying hey we're going to start this new competition amongst the judges to create a cocktail and this year we're going to use this mezcal which was Bagnez that won uh, the you know, best mezcal the year before can you make a cocktail with this and compete with each other and so I was like, all right, I'll play around with this. And I had this cordial that they had sent me and I had this new pamplemousse and I was like, you know, I was thinking Paloma and agave and, right, right, and yeah. kind of spinning on that. And I played around with it and I used that elixir de poivre or, or that, that essence de poivre. And I made this drink and it's 
got a little lemon juice and and that pepper and grapefruit and mezcal and uh, I, m- I made like a little cone with a um, lemon zest and filled it with pink peppercorns and placed it on the rim of the glass and it was beautiful and oh, tasty man. and I won the competition and then I go I, and I'm get I got all this press for winning the competition and I contact Marie Bazaar and I'm like hey I, I want to you asked me to make something. This is what I made. Look, here's the press. I, look, look what I did. And they wrote back. They're like, oh, sorry, we're not going to sell that in the United States. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, why the hell did you send this to me? <laughs> oh, man. So I'm so guessing I, that I you just... I reversed engineered it, and I make it out of a 120-proof vodka. And I make, you know, I, I, I like what I make even better. So we make that in-house now. And I just saw on Instagram there's a restaurant in Brooklyn that that uh, made a version of it and they they put their own spin on it cutting the sugar and increasing the Sichuan pepper and yeah so it that's that's our best seller um but i have a, i have a great team uh, of people right now that are that have amazing talent um and and great palates and they're they're also putting great drink i'm trying to make the menu more about them and their drinks than mine uh at this point and they're putting out some really fabulous stuff. So I'm excited for this new menu that we're about to put out. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that kind of occurs to me as we have this conversation, as I map on what you're saying about cocktails and your approach to developing flavors and put that, put that against your, your past and your history, it seems to me like you're a generalist. You've got your, you wear many hats uh, or have historically worn many hats and you use those skills in your current, in whatever current role you're you're in, you draw on those various skills, whether that's contracting or your time spent with that uh, the the New Orleans chef with the crazy name. Uh, yeah. You take these things and you you roll them into whatever you're doing. And uh, I appreciate that because I consider myself a generalist. How do you think about generalizing or specializing in in either the cocktails or the spirits world? Because I think that could also very well apply to what we're here doing with, yeah. with spirits. What do you think about generalists versus specialists? Well, I, you know, I've been, obviously, I'm, I've been in the business a while. I've done a lot of things. And um, I guess being a generalist was, initially came out of my vision for what Elixir was to be, which was a neighborhood bar. I want, mm-hmm. you know, my goal was open 365, everyone's welcome, something for everyone. I built marketing programs to drive traffic every day of the week, different hours of the day, from sports on the TVs to pub quiz on Tuesday. You know, I was like, yeah, we we are going to be a little bit of everything to everybody instead of being a, just a, a, a specific kind of bar. But then the cocktails got really popular, and suddenly we were a mixology bar when nobody knew what mixology was, and that was great because, like I said, that got us it got us attention, it got us press and people in the door. I got a you know I got a, a photo and a cocktail on the cover of the New York Times, and although it was an obscure cocktail and it was delicious, people would come in like I saw that. And I want that drink. And they would have it and they'd be like, okay, they'd have one of those. And they'd be like, okay, I'll have a Budweiser and a shot of whiskey. And they'd stay. And that's where you make your money. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the I rode that out for a while. And as I was doing that and it got into, I don't know, maybe 2009, 2010, I started to see like the, the work that I was doing out on the road 
as a consultant for Square One Organic Spirits. I was the, the, the uh, brand ambassador and I helped develop a lot of those products and flavor profiles and worked with Allison, the owner, uh, traveling the country. I got to train a lot of bartenders literally back then on just how to squeeze a lime and make simple syrup and talk about freshness and green business and organics. And, and um, when I bring that back to the bar, I realize they're listening. All of a sudden, cocktail bars are, you know, everything's picking up and the press is getting bigger and bigger. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to fight this fight forever. So I had already built up a really big tequila collection because I love tequila. But I realized around 2006 or seven that people associated whiskey more with the with this saloon than tequila. So I shifted into whiskey and I started collecting whiskey. And as we got into 10, 11, 12, we started getting recognition for being a great whiskey bar. And I, that's what I was kind of leaning on, being as a bar and a business specializing, specializing on whiskey while still having great cocktails and being known for making great cocktails. And that kind of has ridden through to today. At the same time, as a co- as a consultant, I start, I got other opportunities. I was, I was invited to become a, a, uh, cognac educator with the BNIC. And so I went to France and I studied cognac and they hired me and I started teaching bartenders about cognac. And then the authentic Caribbean rum program reached out and contacted me and said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to bring this rum education program from Europe over to the States. And we'd like you to be the West coast educator. And then I got to go to the Caribbean and study rum and come back and teach people about rum. And, <laughs> and all this time I was, I had been invited to San Francisco and be a judge. And with ADI here, I've been a judge over a decade and I, I was judging Los Angeles competition. I was judging spirits. So as much as I, you know, I guess I've, I've become even more of a generalist because I've taken time to dive into each specific spirit. Yeah, and and study them. That I've I've gotten an expertise in in so many different spirits, but I, and I can talk about all of them. So in that way, I'm a bit of a generalist. But when I come here, I judge whiskey. Right. And when we go to San Francisco, we we rotate the panels. And even yeah. though I'll be sitting with people that know have their specific kind of specializations, we you know we'll do whiskey to gin to bijo and in, in in a day, and it's a different type of competition. Yeah, it seems like being good at being a generalist and, and I'm, I'm kind of putting you out here is obviously the proofs in the pudding. You are a successful generalist. Yeah. Um, it seems like that takes patience, right? Because what you're saying is now you can't just be a generalist and, and paint with a, with broad brushstrokes and ex- expect instant success. It seems like your definition of generalism, at least as far as this very diverse spirits and cocktail world is concerned, involves having the patience to take the deep dives and the willingness to sit with the specialized aspects of the trade and then come up for air and look around and see what, see what else is out there. Right. Yeah. It's a long view. You gotta have, you gotta play the long game. Yeah. And, and I knew, I think, you know, when I, when I decided to, to open the bar and I, I mean, I did have some thought that it would, might be temporary for a few years and so, or something, because I did have this, you know, I went to Thunderbird, which is this international MBA program, and everybody at Thunderbird is all about global business. And back then, even then, no, not many people were doing global business when I got my Thunderbird MBA. And I had this grandiose vision of traveling the world and working in multiple languages and being in this big corporate environment. And when I lost that job... I, and and there were no more jobs. I mean, do, the dot com crash here was so much worse than two thousand eight or anything. It was the worst thing to happen here in the last twenty years for sure. 
I mean, there's so many people unemployed. People, there was like a two-week wait list for outbound one-way U-Haul rentals. <laughs> so I was just like, all right. When I made the decision to open the bar, I said, this is what I want to do. I don't, I, I dipped my toe in corporate and, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the tech industry as much as I liked the travel and the pay and, and all that. I just didn't really like it. It wasn't me. So I was like, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to have to build this and just to be happy and go long term. And so it's funny. I've, now I, I have a, a product company called Fresh Victor that we're doing cock, fresh juice based cocktail mixers. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to work with some really amazing seasoned veterans in consumer products and building a company, people who have taken companies to, to great success. And I've been at the helm of my own thing for so long now that it's great to work with people that, that I've, I've got some great new mentors. And one of them uh, put a sent a, an article just recently about grit and what, what grit is and what it takes, you know, how, how do you focus on grit and what does it mean in your career? And it's just that it's that sticking to it. The, it's the long game. Like you just, if it's all going to work out, if you just keep, keep working toward that, that goal. And I feel when he sent that, I read that, I'm like, that's what I've been doing. Like, yeah. And I, everything is on this straight line associated with, booze and drinks i mean i say booze which sounds negative but like you know spirits it's it's craft it's culture it's it's commerce uh and everything that comes off of it everything i do from training bartenders in, in hospitality and service and spirit production to judging things or creating products or or just being in the bar and 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 being a bartender like i love all of it and it's great that i've built all these little branches off of it yeah, it was neat, um, kind of like extrapolating that to, to what we're here doing with these with these spirits and, and judging them. Somebody at my table today, we were judging these barrel aged gins, and and they were very different, you know. And and uh, you know, so we were we were asking about like what what we should. We were trying to consult like the ADI guidelines on what a barrel aged gin is, to see what we should and should not be either praising or docking the spirit for. And one of the comments that that somebody made was like, well. Just by sitting here having this conversation, we're contributing to what this category looks like. And, you know, I, I think that's, to me, that that really made me take a step back and, and, and appreciate the, the privilege of what it is to be here and, and have that conversation. Um, so I definitely agree with you with what you're saying of like, you know, taking that through line and, and sticking to it and, and having that be kind of your, your contribution to, to the entire industry. Um, and I've, and I've been with ADI for many years now and I've seen ADI grow from when there were very few craft distillers in the country and Bill Owens and, uh, asked me to, come up and teach a, a whiskey mixology class to some people that were taking a whiskey class up in up here in Marin County. Uh, and that was my introduction to them. And I got to meet all of those people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that, in, in that group was Wes Henderson, who, who now has Angel, Angel's Envy. And like through that, I met his dad. I had met his dad when he came to my bar to show me some Suntory whiskey, but <laughs> nice. you know, it, it was just a great, goes back to that. And now you look at what ADI is now and, and where the craft distilling is now. And it is, it's just been a, a forward trajectory. For sure. Now let's talk about Fresh Victor because this is, uh, I think when you were introducing yourself, you said, this is what's taking up all of my time. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have some sympathy for what it takes to create a consumer packaged goods brand. Um, yeah. 
it's not easy. There's there's a lot of um, middle people between you and, and the end consumer. There's a lot of crunching numbers and um, formulating and reformulating flavor profiles. Um, take us through when you got the idea um, right through to now and, and all these beautiful flavors that you've created. Well, actually, it's not, it wasn't me. The founder is, is uh, my friend Ken and... Uh, Ken and I met about 20 years ago when he was he was uh, selling a, 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 and importing a, a tequila brand called Amate, and he and I met, and he had hired me to run some cocktail bars for promoting his brand, and and we worked together through that a bit. And some years later, he started a, a, a new tequila brand called Republic. He was part of that team that created Republic Tequila in Texas, and um, he called me up again to help him. Where he had this idea of making these these mixers, and uh, I went and visited some juice factories with him, and we we worked on formulas, and I created some uh, some recipes, and he built this. I think they had four different products that he built it up to a, a good volume as a consumer product in Texas. Then he is he and his partners sold that company, and uh, he came back to California and said, "Let's do this thing as." as its own company. And I was like, I'm in, you know? And so we started building it along with uh, some other friends and, and uh, I contributed in the early years to some ideas and, and early branding and development uh, concepts. And they went on and Ken was out doing tastings and consumer tastings at, at supermarkets and stuff and, you know, lugging his bag around. And he really built it up for, for quite a while. And then just uh, within the last two years, uh, two to three years or so, I got back in more involved with it. So Ken's been at it for six, seven years. And uh, just this past year is when I really turned it on and and got more involved in in development and and account development. And and now it's a, a small team of us at the core. And we have seven flavors that are really, um, you know, we have a lemon sour and a lime sour. The lime is lime agave, and the lemon sour is fresh lemon and cane sugar. And we use only organic cane and organic agave. And these would be like and sour mixes for like your classic Collinses and daiquiri style drinks, right? Exactly. Yeah. And um, beyond that, we have uh, we have our pineapple and ginger root. We have a prickly pear or cactus pear and and, and pomegranate. Uh, we have a cucumber lime, a three citrus and mint. Um, we're looking over at the line here, what, what I'm missing. Um, and and we're, we're growing into, we got two more flavors coming up. We're going to do a, a ruby red grapefruit and sea salt, um, which we're fine tuning right now. And we've got a, a strawberry and lemon. And it was built as a consumer product, but now we're actually more focused on the trade. We killed the consumer line for a while. And uh, we're, you know, in the consumer line, we're selling it at 32 ounces, which was 10 cocktails. Everything across the board pretty much mixes at a two to one ratio Yep. Uh, on a very simple level. I've, I've tweaked and played with all of our products to create recipes that really work with our products on a, on a professional level. So it, some of them are less than, you know, they're, they're different ratios. Um, and um, they come in two, a two pack of 64 ounce bottles in, in a gallon case. And we have national distribution with Cisco and PFG and U- U.S. Foods and we're working on national account placements and high volume business that that's helping uh, helping 
high volume accounts provide a fresh, consistent product on a regular basis throughout all of their venues. And that's something that really has not been available prior to this. Right. So that's kind of the need we're meeting on a business level. Right. Yeah. And it, I, I love this. I've actually been thinking a lot about this because you walk into a casino, for example, and I know that, that casinos are, you know, part of your client base. You walk into, you know, a busy, you know, kind of like a big rooftop bar at a, at a giant hotel resort. Um, and you just, you have to lower your expectations. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> you just have to. And it's funny because even if you're a person who really loves and goes out of their way for good craft spirits, well-made cocktails, it's something that you do on autopilot no matter what. You see the venue, you get a feel for the place, and something in your brain kicks into autopilot, you adjust your expectations, and you take a shitty drink. Yeah. For the most part. And that's why I love, I've been, I've been talking to people about this and, and, you know, really, I, I've been thinking a lot about this very situation. And I, I think it's great to be able to <clears throat> take something and make it just a little bit better. You're not changing what these bars are. And, yeah. and on the flip side, you're not creating super efficient robot bartenders who can spit out the perfect old fashioned but our robots. Yeah. Right. So, so you're, you're taking the bar game. You're, you're saying, okay, I recognize your limitations. I accept your limitations, but let's just, let's take this one half step higher. And that may, that, that can mean a lot when you are a consumer and you walk into that and you're expecting, you know, apple pucker or something terrible in a sour mix. And you get something and you, you take that first sip and you go, oh wow, like, yeah, this is actually enjoyable. Yeah, and that's and for even seasoned veterans, that, that that's a big that's a big leap when they're when they get that because we we go in and even today, knowing how many well trained bartenders and good programs there are, I, I mean, you know, you, you a go to for most people is a Negroni because it's equal parts and it's and it's easy and it's hard to mess up, but somehow people still mess it up. Right. So something like this, we're, what we're trying to do is say, you know, I, you know, I made my name in fresh produce driven cocktails and I know what it takes to cost out and, and, and make something that is consistent and delicious for, you know, throughout the year on a 365 business. And I'm just a little 1000 square foot bar. And you try to take that and make it consistent and delicious across multiple units, the same recipe not only differences and variations on on produce quality and pricing but bartender skill level and training and execution and then there's 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 so many different variables and that's what we aim to kind of take off the table and and make things easier and more cost and work efficient for for the the restaurant or bar but as but also higher quality and more enjoyable for the customer absolutely I know we've been, we've both been judging here today, and I want to I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I wanted to do one follow up on that, and then um, kind of maybe talk a little bit about um, just give a, a quick little state of the union of maybe a couple things that we saw here at ADI that were interesting. The one follow up I had on on the fresh Victor point that you were just saying is you know talk, talking about the Negroni. Well, it's easy, and and some places have taken to batching these Negronis based on you know what they know about 
relatively how much traffic is going to be going through that bar at a given time. Uh, I think that's great. And I, I think the cool thing about batched cocktails being in vogue right now is that it's a perfect place to use these fresh fruit juice blends because when you're batching a cocktail, one of the things you're doing is you're trying to make something easy, but also something where there's a little bit of complexity. And you've even made that just a little bit easier with some of these mixes because you've got some complexity in there. It's not just um, limes that you've put through your industrial juicer. Yeah. It's you've got lime and you, you're talking about this ruby red grapefruit and salt, which yep. can make all the difference in a Paloma. Yep. Right? So I really like the batchability of what you're offering too, because not only does it work if you grab it out of the fridge and do an individual pour, but you can also batch with them. And I, I think batching is has become increasingly important in bars these days. Oh, absolutely. Like I've, I've been run doing experiments at my own bar do, on, on a, a kegged cocktail, just running a five-gallon corny keg on a wide variety of things that I've put through that, that works great. And then I also have a catering company that and with our with our beverage catering we do large festivals which we've started to get into and just this past fall we ran all the bars for the oakland pride festival mm -hmm. and we had six bars and, a, and a, a couple of frozen machines at every bar and we went in and batched about six thousand cocktails in about two and a half hours and got them out to six bars and served one hundred fifty thousand people <laughs> and you know, just it's, it's so quick and easy. And I have built all these like batching formulas for using this stuff that you literally just, just how many jugs of our stuff and how many bottles of booze. And you've got something that's quick, easy, delicious and servable and profitable. And uh, that alone is, is a game changer. When I start seeing people being using it in that way, I'll be really happy. For sure. For sure. And I think for that reason and, and for many other reasons, it's a really valuable contribution to the market. So um, definitely looking forward to see it, uh, see it make its make its way out east. You know, I know when you're yeah. on the coast, when you're on one of the coasts, it tends to take a little while for it to reach the other one. But I'm certainly looking forward to uh, seeing Fresh Victor out east and um, just uh, really impressed by by what you've been able to put together with that. Thanks. What what has been fun this year at ADI so far for you? You know, every year uh, as a whiskey judge, I, what's been really fun is having watched the American craft whiskey industry grow over the last decade from super nascent stage to now where we've seen many distilleries learn lessons about just basic lessons about production. In the early, early days, there were stuff there was stuff coming out of distilleries that was just to be frank garbage it was it was scary and and we judged it and we we you know the the one of the great things about this competition is that we give feedback to the distillers we don't just give them a a, a medal and a, or a grade or whatever we give them written feedback and you know i'd like to think that 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 a lot of those distillers took that feedback to heart and and really learned something and did something with it um we've got an amazing group of judges here with with some really highly technical people distillers and analysts and i've learned so much sitting alongside some of these people and as i was saying telling you earlier my my first time judging with this was dave pickerel was the was the judging director and and lincoln henderson was there and dave shurick and and i was tasting with 
Hubert, um, Jermaine Robin and, and learning about Brandy. And I, mean, I just walk away from this, this week or several days uh, every year with all kinds of new knowledge. And um, Nancy Fraley now is, is uh, just a joy to work with. And she teaches me so much every time we do this and, and every, there's just so many, I, you know, I could name them all. Yeah. So that to me is the best thing is how much I actually learn by coming here to do this. Give us that little brief vignette about uh, the, the fermentation that you told me earlier. Oh, and I sat down with, with, uh, yeah, with Uber and uh, Flavia and Disloven and, and uh, I think Alain Royer were, were dodging uh, Brandy and, I, and I, I loved brandy back then. I didn't have as much of an int- uh, entree into it as, as I, I ended up getting later. And actually, Alain took me on a personal tour a few years later of Armagnac. And, but anyway, I sat at that table and I was, uh, I was on a break because I had palate fatigue and I was just watching them judge. And it was complete, complete silence of people. I don't know that a lot of people understand that like when you're judging spirits, it's can be rather boring because it's super it's super quiet and everybody's into their glasses and taking notes and then until we all come together and talk about it. There's a lot of and, making faces. Yeah. There's a lot of faces, <laughs> but yes, silence. And uh, and all of a sudden, they started reviewing whatever they were tasting at the time and it got to, uh, to Uber and Uber said, something went wrong in the fifth day or the third day of fermentation. And I just looked at him, my jaw just dropped and i was like this is a, just another level to be able to taste something and know what the what the fault was and when it happened and that was like my first introduction to that and now that's like you know now i i talk like that <laughs> yeah I, I was sitting next to rob today from uh, blue coat uh, yeah. or um, new liberty distillery and uh you know I rated something rather highly. I was, I was, I was in, you know, and it's okay. Sometimes when you're judging things, there are outliers and, and there are different reasons for being an outlier on a panel. And it's not yeah. always a bad thing because this feedback is getting back to the, the distillers. And sometimes someone is being a consumer advocate when other folks are being technical advocates and, and there's value in both. So yeah. I don't mean to imply that I was wrong, although I probably was in this case, but I, I reviewed something. And then Rob said, Rob went off on like a bunch of like technical, uh, technical flaws. That not only, not only did he have like the chemical name for the, the compounds that he was sensing, but he, he was able to isolate very specific procedural places where this probably went wrong. And to a distiller, that is, that's a, that's a treasure trove. You pay a, a couple hundred dollars to submit some spirits to ADI and you get you get essentially a sniper yeah. to come in and from the other side of the country point out what's going wrong in your process. I mean, that's yeah. hugely, hugely valuable. And I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't say enough about how much I admire that. Now, not my skill set. <laughs> I yeah. tend to be more of a consumer advocate, but, um, but anyway, we digress. Um, I always say I'm, I always say I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm a bartender who hangs out with scientists. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> so um, I've, I've through the process of osmosis, I have absorbed a lot of scientific knowledge over the years yeah. and, uh, and I, and I continue to. Well, and you learn a lot of science through application in the kitchen too. Yeah. Uh, you mess up, you mess up a dish or a preparation enough times you, you do the work to figure out what you messed (laughs) up and you, and you absorb that. So I I think there's something to be said for, for being in the kitchen and behind the bar with produce and with stuff. But, um, 
so more of the story, the whiskey scene has certainly evolved. We're getting yeah. some more mature products. And obviously that's a byproduct of whiskey having time to sit in barrels. But what what well, else is going on besides yeah. just the fact that it has had time to mature on oak? Uh, it's interesting, actually. You know, there's there's so much product now. We, we used to have, I mean, I think originally we had one whiskey panel and then two. And now we've got three because there's a lot of whiskey coming through. And, you know five eight years ago everybody that wanted to make whiskey was making vodka gin unaged rum and white whiskey or moonshine or whatever they're going to call it so because everybody's trying to get something to market to sell and sure get some cash flow going and so we had a lot of that and it was like you know that is mostly subsided now and people have had whiskey in the barrel and one of the things we're seeing, I think, a lot of is that uh, whiskey that went in the barrel five to, I don't know, four to eight years ago or so, um, when there was this big rush of people that wanted to make whiskey, there was a barrel shortage. And so a lot of barrels that went out and a lot of people that were buying barrels were green wood or un- unseasoned wood or kiln dried or right. not the best wood for for barrels. And so we, in the... F- coming years of course they continue to push stuff out at six months or 12 months or 18 months onto the market an 18 month whiskey or even a six month whiskey and because they want to sell something they want to learn some lessons and all that and we could see the green you could taste the green wood you can smell it you can you know it's it's obvious and now there's a five eight year old product that was put down in that and it's and there's still some hints of it in there and we can understand like why you can't you know that was what was available but there and i'm seeing when i visit distilleries and i taste other stuff that's even younger now actually sometimes more promise in a two to four year whiskey and some of those that we're putting at a bigger way that was one of my biggest takeaways the last couple of days is yeah in the stuff that i tasted and this year i tasted mostly bourbon some years you know that's up to the team here as to where they put us on a panel sometimes it's just all rye or it's a mix of both and uh, this year I had mostly young bourbons so far. And, uh, so it's, it's, and I sell a lot of bourbon, you know, in my whiskey bar of 600 bottles, I'd say 60% of that is American whiskey. Cause that's what, what's really selling. Although I am more of a, a malt drinker myself. Uh, I've got some amazing malts, but it's the, I got to stay on top of the American whiskeys. And sure. This helps me do that. Yeah, on my panel, um, I've, I've been in the gin room. The gin gets its and gin also has three tables. Uh, yeah, although a lot we, of gin. We tend to pull some double duty. We we've uh, we throw in. They, they they try and keep us from getting. I would I wouldn't say palate fatigue, but you you might say juniper fatigue. Yeah. Um. By by threading into our flights various other things, whether that's. Um, you know, vodkas occasionally, some ready-to-drink things. I had a vermouth today. Oh, nice. Uh, I had a really interesting, and, and this was the flight where I kind of got into a little bit of trouble, uh, a flight of beer schnapps, mm-hmm. which was really interesting. Uh, and I think we were all a little bit out of our elements with that because it's such a, a category that is very alien to the United States. And yep. we... To be honest, we didn't have a whole lot of experience judging it. We could really do a good job with the sensory analysis, but there were still some hanging questions as as to like the category, yeah, a trueness. So the, the one that we thought was really promising, we are actually sending off to review, and we're lucky enough to have some folks here from Germany yeah. who have a little bit more experience with that. So yeah. our hope is that if we can get some people with more experience in that category, we can get them to either 
confirm or refute yeah. our set of findings. Um, the other thing that I found interesting is I, d- I had several flights of barrel-aged gins yesterday. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say that there is some terrible stuff out there. <laughs> but also some very good stuff out yeah, there. Yeah, I've always liked that concept. Yep. Um, so that was fun for me. Uh, yesterday was rough for me. We had some, we had a, at least on my panel, uh, a largely disappointing day of, of uh, kind of rush, rushed American gins um, that were uh, a little bit less promising than, than I would hope for. I'm, I'm, fr- I'm from the D.C. area, and, and we're lucky to have a bunch of distilleries that do a great job with their gins yeah. uh, because we're in a gin market. And I think that that really elevates the the level of conversation about what gin should be in our market. Um, so I, I was a little bit disappointed in that. But I, I, I love this competition, and I feel really privileged to be a part of this because it gives you such a wide a wide angle view of what's out there yeah that i wouldn't otherwise be able to get so um it's interesting too where you say you know like between this and some other competitions what's great here is is this is you see the the up-and-coming stuff you see what you see where some innovation is and where some boundaries get pushed and where people take chances and um and it's not a lot of the big name big money brands that are mm-hmm. that are entering this competition so it's it's kind of a good measure of entrepreneurship and creativity within the spirits world. And we even had a, the, the big, the big, uh, kind of shocking, uh, bottle that is, no, it's not a bottle yet. We don't get to see the bottle until tomorrow night, but the, the big shocking thing is the mare's milk spirit. Oh, I didn't even hear about you that. You haven't heard about this? Nah. Apparently there is a mare's milk spirit that was, I imagine it was on one of the wild card tables that kind of absorbs some of the categories that don't get a ton of submissions, but apparently there was a distillate made from mare's milk. Interesting. Very interesting to me. And they said actually that it was quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, despite being a little bit odd. So, yeah. um, so folks, uh, this is the kind of thing that you see at a spirits judging competition. Uh, <laughs> we are, there, there are some of us here who are specialists like the, like the folks who can tell you, uh, on what day of fermentation, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a brandy was flawed. Uh, and then there's some of us, uh, like H and I, who, uh, we just try and pay really close attention and we try and, uh, we try and use our senses to, to speak not only on behalf of, uh, of the industry, but on behalf of consumers. And I, I think, uh, at least to me, that's, that's why I, I really, um, love being here. So, and um, that's the nice thing about the conversation, having multiple, multiple judges on one thing is you've got people who are technical, who actually make this stuff. And you've got people who like me, who sell it, I buy it and sell it. And I'm, and I'm, I'm a filter, but it gets to the public if I decide that I'm going to sell it and, and me and, and many others. And then right. there are writers who decide whether or not they're going to write about it and get the word out. And so exactly. we all sit in a circle and say, I like this for this reason, or I don't like mm-hmm. it for that reason. And we, and we come to a consensus. It was interesting. I tended to be like, if you compare, for example, that beer schnapps flight against our ready to drink flight that we had today, the beer schnapps flight, I was giving these things beautiful high i was given golds and silvers on this beer on this beer schnapps flight and everyone else was a lot more hesitant um now you flip that on its head with the ready to drink flights that i that i did today and i'm personally extremely sensitive to artificial flavors especially sweeteners because i i did not grow up on eating any diet or any um any of those fake sugars um 
And I'm also very sensitive to artificial flavors because I make bitters and I taste a lot of bitters that are made with flavor extracts and I know exactly what real flavor extracts taste like. So I'm very sensitive to those two things. And when they were saying crushable, you know, great score, I would totally drink this while tubing down a river. I was like, this is, this is totally fake tasting to me. And, and I can, I can, I can give it a balance score. I can, I can rate it for balance and I can rate it for some of its qualities, but I can't, I can't give it my stamp of approval because there are going to be some people out there like me who are just going to say, this tastes artificial. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a, a, a lot of the foundation of what we're trying to do with, with fresh Victor. It's yeah. like, it, it's gotta be fresh. It's gotta taste like it should taste yeah. and shelf stable products that are filled with different things to keep them shelf stable tend to taste it in the end. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, H, this has been great, man. I mean, I'm, I'm really stoked to have been able to catch up with you like this. Um, Thanks really? for having me. Yeah. Is, is there anything else you wanted to communicate to our listeners about your bar? Uh, how do we, you know, how do they, how do they find your bar? If they get to visit San Francisco, how do they find Fresh Victor? Any digital stuff you want to? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, you know, I guess on the, on the handle level, Elixir is uh, at Elixir SF, E-L-I-X-I-R-S-F. You'd be amazed how many people misspell Elixir with an E-R, which is not a word in any language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's then, not, it's not elix with a Y, like the absolute. Exactly. Yeah. It's right? elixir. Um, and, uh, my personal consulting stuff is my cocktail ambassadors company is cocktailambassadors.com or at cocktail ambassadors, my Instagram, uh, fresh Victor is at fresh Victor cocktails on Instagram. Although we're not, we're not very active in social media right now and our website's getting updated. We're really in, in kind of a, uh, a pre-marketing phase even we've got a website that's that's clunky and not great and we're, we're going to be relaunching that and um you know we're, we're right now focused on getting the product out and we're going to relaunch all the marketing a little bit later this year which will look a lot better but it's freshvictor.com yeah and then my catering business is elixir to go at elixir to go so those are all the things that i i do and keep keep building and we're in the mission district at 3200 16th street san francisco uh we're open 365 and so anybody that's in town it's in you know san francisco is not a big town so everything's a, a short car ride away absolutely so next time you're in san francisco go see one of the oldest bars i would imagine in the country uh check out some some great uh, american whiskey and some uh produce driven cocktails at elixir and uh, otherwise h thanks again man Thanks for having me. Congrats on all this. This is really fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. 
can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Spirits and Cocktail Insights by H. Joseph Ehrman, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.